looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Jonathan, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week is no exception. Welcome, everybody, to Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Great to have you back for episode 54. That's right, 54 amazing episodes. Can't believe it. Hope you caught last week's with Shannon Wilson and the weeks prior with Jack O'Halloran, Burt Ward, Ted Lange. So many amazing guests to live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show, over these 54 episodes. I hope you're enjoying them all. And you know what you're going to really enjoy? Today's episode. That's right. Today's episode with comedian Ted Alexandro, one of the funniest comedians around. You loved him on his multiple Comedy Central specials on Kimmel, Conan, his amazing specials on YouTube. You're going to love our chat, and it's coming up in just a few minutes. I do want to take a second to thank everyone listening on the CastBox app or your favorite podcast app and subscribing and liking and telling all your friends about Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin show. It's a perfect topic to keep in the back of your pocket when the conversation is getting boring and you're with your friend and he's like, oh, you know what kind of bread I love? I just discovered this new wheat bread. It's so delicious. Dry. Yet hey, you can interrupt. Have you listened to Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin show, one of the funniest pop culture interview shows in the world that you can uh, listen to on your favorite podcast app, such as Gasbox or Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And they'll be like, no. And then you'll be like, well, you got to do it. Put that wheat bread down. <laughs> and while you're at it, get yourself some decent bread and listen to live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin show. You won't regret it. Either of those decisions. You won't regret either decision. So I do want to provide a quick update. Two episodes ago, I shared my traumatic experience with FedEx. I had ordered a package and it had traveled across the country. And then the FedEx person got to my sidewalk and decided, far enough, my friends, I throw the package from here. And he threw the package from the sidewalk onto my porch. I caught the whole thing on my Ring video, and I posted it on my Twitter, at Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's still there. You can go check it out. Quite humorous. And I challenged everyone, please reply to this tweet. Let me know how far you think the FedEx guy threw my package. And I realized after saying the words, he threw my package so many times, it did sound a little dirty, but I literally meant he threw a package of mine. So thank you for all those who wrote in about that. And let me clarify, my package is safe. It was the actual physical package that was thrown. So I asked everyone, how far do you think the package was thrown? We had 7 feet, 16 feet, 20 feet. The correct answer is 12 feet. My package was thrown 12 feet. FedEx took it thousands of miles and many destinations, got 12 feet from where it should have laid before I picked it up, and the guy said, No more, sir! This is as far as I go. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if he actually had a bad British accent. Anyway, so go go watch the video. It's kind of funny, but the answer was 12 feet. He threw it 12 feet, and I appreciate you all playing. Playing along with me. Speaking of playing along with me, join me every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time for Crossing the Streams. That's my live show. You can catch all the past episodes on YouTube on the Jeff DeWaskin Show 
channel on YouTube. We've got 23 amazing episodes up there right now. We talk about awesome shows and movies that you should be streaming on the many streaming services. So check that out. It's tons of fun and it's engaging. So you can comment along during the show. We put your comments up. We'll talk to you. You can weigh in on the shows we're talking about live while we're talking about them. Super fun. Speaking of super fun, head over to jeffisfunny.com. That's my website. On my website, you can sign up for my mailing list and I send out emails weekly just to remind you how awesome the show is and that you can share with your friends. I try to make it as easy as possible for you to share your love for live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show, with all your friends. I'm really excited. You know what next week is? Next week is our one-year anniversary. That's right. It'll be exactly one year since the first episodes of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show hit the airwaves. So we got a big show for you planned for next week. That's going to be tons of fun. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, here's your inside scoop on all things social. I was reading the trade magazines. Twitter's coming out with a tip function. That's like the cool new hip thing is to tip creators. A creator would be, say, a host of a podcast, such as Jeff Duoskin, host of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. You could go on Twitter. You could tip me for my funny tweets. Clubhouse does this. They have a send money option. It's kind of the new in thing to be able to help creators make a little money to cover the costs that they spend to bring you awesome, awesome content week after week after week. I've got a little thing on my website and in all the show notes called Buy Me a Coffee. You can just buy me a coffee. You buy me a coffee and I'll do you a little shout out. It's a lot of fun and I'll do it while I'm sipping coffee. I'm drinking this coffee and I'd like to thank blah, 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 blah. See, it's that easy. Anyway, so look for that and see if you can set it up for yourself. Share the love, tip people that you like, let them know that they should keep creating the funny and keep going. All the creators out there will love you for it. And that's the social media tip. I want to thank everyone who supports the sponsors week after week after week. Can't thank you enough. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. The sponsors email, DM, text me, call me. They're like, Jeff, we cannot believe the response we get after one of your live advertising reads. I'm like, I know. My fans are amazing. My listeners are incredible. And that's why the sponsors keep coming back week after week. I can't thank you all out there for supporting them week after week. It's how we keep the lights on here at Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin Show. This week's sponsor, looking to impress your teacher? Trying to keep that doctor off your back? Sounds like you need an apple. That's right, you need an apple. Apples just aren't for eating, making sauce, jelly, or turning into dried fruit. Apples also can woo your teacher and keep the doctor far, far away. But guess what? That's not all. Apples also relieve constipation, reactivate good gut bacteria. When was the last time you were asked, hey, how's your gut bacteria? I don't know. Eat an apple and turn it good. Apples also decrease the risk of your diabetes and protect yourself from osteoporosis. There's so many hidden benefits benefits of apples. Did you know when you're staring at a Macintosh, a Golden Delicious, a Gala, a Honeycrisp, Granny Smith, Crab, that you were staring at a constipation reliever? That you were staring at your one degree solution for good gut bacteria? Oh my God. Grab an apple and 
Do yourself a favor. Make your life that much better. Apples, we're here for you. All right. Well, grab an apple. I love apples. Who doesn't? You know, I love a good, I like the green ones that are a little tart. Those are my favorite. So go grab an apple. Available anywhere. There's trees with apples or supermarkets. You can get those at your local supermarkets. Just tell them, live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show sent you. Now that we're all free from constipation, living high on our good gut bacteria, it's now time for me to share my conversation I had with Ted Alexandro with you. Enjoy. I'm excited to introduce to you my next guest. You've seen him on Conan, David Letterman, Jimmy Kimmel, everywhere. One of the funniest comedians around, ladies and gentlemen, Ted Alexandro. Ted, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. Good to be with you again after so many years, my friend. I know, 2004, we worked together at Mark Ridley's Comedy Castle. Yeah, I mean, you know how it is. In in some ways, it feels like it was last weekend, and in other ways, it feels like it was 2004. Well, it's funny, like, as I do these and I talk to some people that I haven't talked to in, you know, 16 years, it's like in my head, I'm like, it's hard to kind of wrap it around the whole idea that so much time has gone by. Yeah. Yeah. With comedy, you know, like you're constantly working with different people. So when you're thrown together for a weekend and it's, you know, it's an intense kind of intimate experience of like you're watching each other work, you're hanging out backstage, maybe you go out for a drink or a bite afterwards or, or during the day even. So you become friends and then uh, then you go your separate ways and you, you meet up again over the years. So it's it's this weird thing where time just loses its kind of rigidity and it's just a very fluid thing that it, it feels like, you know, like I said, it could be last week last month whenever i'm bad enough as it is with time frames like i remember i was getting my haircut once and the guy's like wow we, we've been together for a while i go has it been a year already he goes jeff you've been going to me for five years i'm like what really five years <laughs> right how is that even possible I know. You family-wise right now are sort of like where I was then. I had kids already, young kids. When I finished like my first 10 years of doing comedy, I created a scrapbook, a digital scrapbook. And so I went back because like that first 10 years, I don't know how you were like when you first started, but I saved everything, every flyer, anything that ever had my name on it, sure, picture, anything <laughs> yeah. like that. I always saved it. Mm-hmm. So I went back and I found from 2004, my page with Ted Alexandro, which oh, we worked wow. together twice that year. Yeah, I remember. I remember. This is right. You ready for this? Give it to me. Because this trills cracks me up. So the, the backstory is this was my first time featuring. So this was a big deal for me. Oh, wow. At Mark Ridley's Comedy Club, which is like the big club. Yeah. And I was a feature and you were the headline. Yes. This is what I wrote, right? I had the pleasure of working with Ted Alexandro twice this year. The first time was my feature gig at the Comedy Castle. I did really great that weekend. After one show, someone came up to me and Ted and said, you both were amazing. My head was bursting. I had just gotten the same compliment as the headliner. She then continued to say to Ted, but you, you, the ladies must want to fuck you. <laughs> and then I died inside. <laughs> I, I, I remember logging that into my comedy journal as well. That, that <laughs> That's hilarious. I remember sitting there. It was like one of those moments where I was like, I had never felt better about myself. And then all of a sudden she just turns to you and says that. I'm like, oh my God. I, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a secondary competition going on. And I <laughs> yeah, the levels of it. You know, that encapsulates showbiz, right? Yeah, the, the highs and lows in a in a 10-second span. 10 seconds. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. And I remember at uh, at the castle, too, you kind of, uh, you have the little merch table there at the end. So, you, you kind of greet everybody as they come out. And that's always such a vulnerable feeling, especially when you're not 
you know, I mean, I don't know if it changes or not, but I'm presuming when you become like more of a household name and people know you from stuff outside of stand up, it's a different relationship as opposed to I was usually and still am largely in a position where, you know, maybe there's a handful of people that know you from stuff, but a lot of times it's people that are maybe just going to the comedy club and they are surprised, like in the case of the, of whoever approached us, you know, they're kind of just coming to a night of comedy. And, uh, yeah, so they, I think a lot of times they are surprised if they, if they enjoy you. Cause I think people foolishly sometimes have this notion of like, there's, you know, however many it is, 10, 20 comedians that they know. And then everybody else is like an open micer or just, you know, someone who's like uh, trying to br break big or whatever. A lot of times when people just go to one of these comedy clubs, they're just they're like, oh, I'm just going to go see comedy tonight. And it just happens to be whoever. A lot of times, you know, sometimes they do say, oh, this is my favorite comedian. I'm going to go. Yeah. It's definitely different. I always found it fascinating because like that comedy castle had been there for decades. And like the people that would come in, older people, you know. <laughs> older then but my age now <laughs> the, <laughs> they would be like oh this is my first time at a comedy club it was great i'm like your first time really it's not like they're like deep deep in the cities you know what i mean these they're like they're like everywhere yeah yeah it is strange right and the things people say after a show too it's always you're a little bit like I, at least i always felt a little bit on edge like it could go either way like like what you said with that woman it could it could start out being a compliment and and quickly turn south or and i think it's Especially, too, because, again, we're so vulnerable after having just performed. Really, it's it's not right that we're out there in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like, Mick Jagger's not going out to the lobby after a show, not to compare us to Mick Jagger. But, you know, like, you, you do kind of need that alone time to decompress. But, like, literally right after a show, we're face-to-face -face with the people that were just watching us. And, and a lot of times, they just feel very free to say whatever the hell they want. And it, it can cut you to the core. Yes. When I stepped off stage... And this is why I also didn't like comedy competitions. I like to feel like I felt. And like sometimes you'd have a, a B show, right? You know, like a grading scale B, right? And like, so you'd, you'd go out and everyone would be like, that was amazing. You were amazing. And you're like, no, that didn't make me feel good either. <laughs> you'd be like, no, yeah. no, I felt like I wasn't on, totally on. And then I felt like sometimes if I destroyed, you kill, and then you walk out and no one says anything to you, I feel just as bad. <laughs> <laughs> it is funny, right? You have that internal sense of how you did. And sometimes it doesn't match up with the feedback, you know? Yeah, it is. It's very weird. It's very weird. But I always kind of felt like it would sit fine with me if I had the sense like, oh, I nailed that. I did what I intended to do. You know, whether it was like trying to get a certain bit to work or something new you were putting out. I'm usually pretty good about compartmentalizing, like even if the crowd was not what I expected, uh, unless it, I mean, totally just there's a total disconnect where it's like I didn't get anything. That's obviously a little weird, but if if I do what I set out to do, I usually feel pretty good about it. Especially like the more you do it, obviously, as you go along, you start to realize it's just another night in a long string of nights and you'll do another show, if not that same night, certainly the next night. So every night has less import the further along you go. When you're first starting out, like every night is like, you know, just make or break. I always felt like I didn't have laugh ears. Like I could, t you know what I mean? Like I didn't hear things that weren't there. Like I would know if it was good or bad, you know? So it was like, I didn't want anyone else to tell me differently after. 
You know what I mean? Right. It was like, it's the same thing with like a comedy competition. It was like, oh, Ted, you won. And it was like, we all kind of won. We all had great sets. You know what I mean? Yeah. To me, com- comedy is about enjoying who's on stage. You don't have to like pick which one was the best. Uh, yeah, I, I could not agree with you more on that perspective. And I think that kind of permeates a lot of not only show business, but just the psyche of life, that competition type thing. I mean, we're inundated with it, whether it's, you know, we saw it with Last Comic Standing, obviously, and now all these shows, America's Got Talent or The Voice or on and on, Shark Tank. They're all kind of pitting one against the other, and there's one winner, and everyone else is... uh varying degrees of of loser but yeah i I agree with you i and that's why i never did those shows because to me it kind of flies in the face of what i think of comedy being to begin with we're not all on stage at the same time you experience this person and their vibe their energy their style and then you experience the next person you know and it's not a competition you know i understand how that works for television and for ratings and packaging and all that but that never appealed to me and it kind of galled me actually which is why i I never went out for any of those shows i went after one once but i did not make it (laughs) (laughs) fair enough You weren't meant to, you know, the the comedy gods would would not let you get through. No, no, no. But it was funny because I flew down to Florida to get in line because Mark Ridley had gotten me and J. Chris Newberg kind of like an in, right? But he missed the flight. This was before cell phones. And so I'm in line for four hours until he got there. Wow. And while we're in line, everyone's talking about, oh, you know, no, you know, Kathleen Madigan's already in the house and John Heffron's already in the house. And like everyone was like listing off every single person (laughs) that was. So you start to slowly realize because nobody knew like reality TV in the beginning was how fake it was. At least, you know, not the masses, right? Right. Like you watch, I was like season one survivor. I was like all into it. I wasn't like, I didn't come in later. I was like, oh, this is, this is as real as it gets, you know? And then later you start to, I remember being backstage after the thing because my friend was going to make it to the the night after. And I remember Jim Norton was there too. He made it to like that show also. But then they were started talking to this guy, Buckstar, and he was like their plant at every city. And then I remember seeing it and going, oh my God. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. Yeah. It's just a show. They're just, there was one season where they let a guy go through and he ended up winning. And I was like, there's no way that guy deserved to get through. Was it Dan Fan the first? No, I'm not even talking about it. He won the first one, but I'm talking about like a later season. Later, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's like. Yeah, no, there's too many variables. And and definitely as reality TV went along and you could see them putting their hands and, and, you know, on the the scales and, and dictating the way things would go and shooting things certain ways. Yeah, it was it was favoring different different people and so it's not even, you know, on the one hand they're saying, "Yeah, come on, be what's the big deal? Just be part of a competition." But it's not even really that. As you say, you know, your stomach is kind of sinking as you're standing online and you're finding out that the house is already half full. Exactly. Yeah, it's bizarre. Let's go back in time. So you started you were a teacher before you went into comedy. Yeah, pretty much. Like as I started, I was I was teaching during the day. How hard was it to step away from teaching? Because to be a teacher, I think you have to like you probably like were like very dedicated to that. People who choose to be teachers are very giving, and that's like I want to do this and educate the young. <laughs> what bit you that moved you into the comedy full time? Well, I would say it was not difficult at all for me to, to step away because. <laughs> I had been doing it for five years at that point. As I said, I was teaching during the day at a couple of different schools in in New York. 
So I was fortunate that, you know, I was doing a job that I did love. And, you know, as you say, it, it was fulfilling. I was teaching music. I had had a, deg a degree in, in uh, music. So I was teaching elementary school music. So that was fulfilling and, and creative in its own way and also public speaking and, you know, being in front of uh, groups. So I think it, it definitely helped with all of that as well so that it was a good complement to pursuing comedy at night, you know, like finding your voice, that kind of thing. Because I think as a teacher, you do that as well. You kind of find your style, your voice, what fits you in front of a class. But, you know, as each year went by, I was enjoying teaching less because comedy was clearly what I wanted to do and was starting to make a little bit of money. And I was getting more opportunities, signed with a manager. So yeah, it was becoming clear that that was going to be my path. And I even probably left a year later than I should have. I was kind of burnt out on teaching by the time I got out. Yeah, I left like halfway through the year. I told the principal, I'm going to leave after the, the holiday break. But it was cool. I mean, by that point, I had done Conan that October and uh, left teaching in January, I guess. So by then, like the whole school knew I was a comedian and the, the, all the teachers knew. So it wasn't like a surprise or anything. They all knew that I was, you know, somewhat legitimate. That's awesome. You did Conan a couple of times. You've done Letterman, Kimmel. What's it like just preparing for a guy that's never done it? What's it like? <laughs> I mean, was, I'm assuming some people are listening that have never done <laughs> it. What's it like preparing like for that? And they, they, all the sets have to be different. I've, I've seen some of your sets on it. I mean, it's always like this, you know, it's got to be this tight thing and it's controlled, right? Because it's, I mean, it's going to be on TV. So they're like probably very specific. Yeah, what's it, what's yeah. it like kind of getting through and landing on the final set that you do? Well, it's definitely different than just typically doing your set that you would do at a club. You don't have the freedom, as you said. It has to be vetted by the booker. And depending on the show, the booker can be pretty easygoing and allow you to pretty much submit your set and approve it more or less. Typically, you'll submit more than you wind up doing. And then they'll say like, okay, let's lose these couple of jokes or whatever. So as I went along, I became a little more savvy to submit like the ones that I, I kind of knew that were going to get cut because like this group of jokes work better together. So I was pretty sure like they're going to approve all this and these will be the ones they cut anyway. But yeah, it, it you, you kind of become, it's a it's the same way that learning how to do a set at a club is a certain skill and getting your legs there and different clubs too, right? Because like your home club, that starts to become very comfortable, very familiar and you hit your stride there and there's less variables as far as things that might throw you. Same thing with doing a, a television set. Like my first one, I, I think the Conan was the first like big one that I did. I had done some like regional things. But yeah, Conan, I remember uh, just working really hard on that, preparing, just running the set countless times and really making a point to memorize not just the set list, but also each of the kind of opening lines of, of the jokes and then the transitional lines. Like, here's how this joke ends and how this joke begins. So just having that kind of fluid train of thought or just that there was a seamlessness to the flow of a set so that I... Also because, you know, you know how it is when you're on stage... When there's a reaction, be it laughter or applause, and, and oftentimes with TV crowds, they applaud more than, than they laugh. So I wanted to be mentally prepared for however they react. My mind is already ready for what's coming so that I'm not like, you know, lost in the moment of how they're reacting. So yeah, just a, a lot of that preparation that goes into then hopefully being able to enjoy the moment. You know, I think I got better as that went along. In the early going, I was just so excited and so amped that I think I was a little 
probably over excited, but then uh, I settled into being able to to own it more. So the day after Conan, who's Colin? What's ringing? <laughs> like, <laughs> like what were the what were the spikes that you got? I'm sure you got like more club dates because you know the more TV credits you had, then you had the you know people, the clubs were probably calling you left and right. And like, what what type of opportunities were were coming at you? Is this how you got on Doctor Katz? Or is it? <laughs> yeah, you know, I can't remember the timeline. It was probably somewhere between, yeah, the Conan set and because that was the first one. And then I had done a Comedy Central Presents half hour, you know, maybe within a couple of years of that. The Dr. Katz thing probably came along after the Comedy Central half hour, you know, just because I was in the Comedy Central pipeline and he probably maybe saw the special or however that came to be. Yeah, I, I do remember that after the Conan set for myself, and I think, you know, just people in general, the industry, other comedians, they look at you differently. It's a it's a stamp of approval that you've got some heat on you and you've done one of the major shows. It just legitimizes you in a way, in, in your own eyes and in the eyes of others, that think you can kind of exhale a little bit and, you know, as I say, just own things, own yourself, own your own uh, energy a little bit more because so much of comedy is <laughs> in the early going convincing yourself that that you're a comedian right like you're, right. you're just going to open mics and you're traveling around and you're doing gigs and you know you almost don't say it out loud in the beginning or you don't tell anyone like if you're meeting people or you know just i'm sure you've been in the position on a plane somebody has like what do you do you know in the beginning i was oh, i'm a teacher you know like let's end this <laughs> let's end this as quickly as we can but the more you do those types of uh, late night sets and stuff you uh you settle into that like yeah i am a comedian and uh, if i have to i'll even tell the person i'm sitting next to on a flight well it's a logo slide it looks great on a poster it, like it, it does give you credit and it's like it's yeah. great for your parents to be able to explain oh my my boy was <laughs> Conan. Sure. Oh, you haven't heard of Conan? Have you heard of Letterman? No. Have you heard of Kimmel? <laughs> right. Frank Ferguson? No. no, I don't know who that is. What about The View? Have you heard of The View? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's exciting to, to do those things. Yeah, for that reason too, because you are sharing it with family, with friends, with all these people who have been cheering you on at all these crappy gigs that you do that they've come to. That's part of it too. For a comedian, you, in a lot of ways, you're so hyper-focused on yourself and on the gigs and the next gig and getting better. If you're not careful, you can lose the ability to appreciate and celebrate those moments as they come up because they can also be fleeting. Like, you know, you, you do Conan or whatever it is. And then the next night you're back at some gig and it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So there can be the highs and lows of like, I was on Letterman last night and like, you know, you're just at some bar gig the next night or whatever. And tonight at Leo's Steakhouse, we yeah. present. <laughs> yeah, that's no exaggeration. Ted Alexandro, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone always talks about that. It's like, oh, it sounds like it's almost mandatory that like, you do a stadium and then you got to do someone's basement the next day. It's like, there's, it's what keeps you in check. Right, right. Yeah. And as I say, the more you do stand up, the better you are able to manage the emotional highs and lows that come with that so that you don't lash out at the crowd at Leo's Steakhouse because they're not <laughs> the Letterman crowd. Do you know where I was yesterday? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> or you can even just, you know, you make a joke about it and say, you know, uh, last night I, to prepare for this gig, uh, you know, I was, I was on Letterman last <laughs> night and now I feel ready for, for Leo's. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
So you did you did two Comedy Central specials, though, right? I did, yeah, yeah. You also did an amazing web series called Teacher's Lounge, which I think is we reconnected when you were doing that because I think I had a website and I was like, oh, let me uh, let me let me let me share this. I want to share this. That was great, and that had every hitter in comedy in it. And then obviously you drew on your teacher background as well for this teacher's lounge. Yeah, that was exciting. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. That that was exciting. My buddy Hollis James, with whom I started in stand-up, uh, we went to Queens College together and he had founded the sketch comedy group at Queens College. So in a lot of ways, he was really responsible for me getting into comedy and, and realizing that it was something I wanted to pursue, you know, because I just went out for the sketch group there and he, you know, cast me in it and uh, I submitted some sketches to him and he put them in the show. So that was very affirming that, oh, wow, I guess, you know, like, I guess I'm funny. I guess I can write jokes. So then when we graduated, we started going out to open mics together and we did a little duo thing for a year, year and a half. But over the years, we collaborated on a lot of different projects, uh, some screenplays and then Teacher's Lounge. I always had the thought of like, I can use my teaching experience and try to find use that as a kind of a foundation. So what we wound up doing was I played the music teacher, Hollis played the janitor and different Comedians came in playing faculty members in every episode. So uh, as you said, we had heavy hitters. Everyone from Jim Gaffigan played the school nutritionist. Louis Black was the principal. Judy Gold was the gym teacher. Jim Norton, as you mentioned, was uh, head of security. So just all these great comedians. And we thought of it in a certain sense as... Um, like almost like Curb Your Enthusiasm meets uh, Dr. Katz in that we're allowing comedians to come on and essentially play themselves and giving them a framework of like, here's here's the beats that we'll be hitting. Here's the basic storyline. And then, you know, you can just run with it and, and improvise. Dave Attell famously played the school photographer. And I mean, talk about running with it. Yeah, like we he just he he just made it his own. And we had a lot of comedians on that particular episode playing faculty members because he was, you know, he was taking the, the faculty photo and everybody stuck around even after their scene was shot. Everyone stuck around to watch Attell because he was he was so captivating to watch him work. I love Dave Attell. He's I've seen him a few times as well. Yeah, I saw him actually in, uh, with Mitch Hedberg. Wow, when they were touring together, yeah. and and then Dave Attell and Louis Black and Louis Black. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that tour. That was yeah. a Comedy Central tour. It That's was, right. Well, that that was shortly before Mitch passed, right? Like within a couple of years. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was great to be able to. I've said I've seen him. Like, that's a hell of a tour. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. Was, that's always the interesting thing I found about comedy. Like to, those were like three huge names, right? Huge mm-hmm. names. And you could talk to some people, and they're like, "Oh yeah, you da 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 da," and they're like, "Who?" <laughs> yes. They're like, "How yes. do you not know who these people are?" It's like it's amazing to me. Like just, I mean, I guess it's the same thing with actors and certain like you know, in certain music groups and stuff like that. There's just certain people that know who they know, and but it was always yeah. like, "How do you not know these three people?" It's like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe because, you know, you're in the world. I mean, I was in the world. This is who I looked up to. and Yeah, and we're always a bit ahead of, of the curve because we're working with these people or know folks who have worked with them or we just know who, you know, who's good and who's coming up. But yeah, Dave Dave always kind of stood to me as a, as a real genius, you know, just a guy who was so quick and so smart and so 
singular. Yeah, I mean, coming up through New York, getting the chance to watch him night after night was a real gift for me as a comedian coming up because you're watching a real virtuoso just, you know, do his thing. He was so good. I, I think it was before Lewis Black probably was on The Daily Show all the time. So there was I think there was just before that, too. Yep. So Teacher's Lounge, so why why didn't Comedy Central pick it up? It seemed like it would have been like such an amazing show. Thanks. Yeah, it, you know, it was disappointing. Um, the way things go in showbiz, you pitch things around, and I always felt like this is tailor-made for a comedy series, for like it has legs, like you just keep plugging in. And we even s- saw down the line, obviously you can plug in actors, you can plug in athletes. There's kind of just an endless stream of scenarios you can build for whoever's coming into a school. So we pitched it around first in script form and people passed. Then we shot the 10 episodes, which are all available on YouTube now. So we we figured like, you know, let's, let's do it. Let's make it, create it, do it the way we want to. And I'm glad we did because it was really satisfying in every facet, you know, just creatively writing it, shooting it, just the fact that I was able to get all these comedians to do it, uh, you know, Michael Che and Todd Barry, you know, everyone, Rachel Feinstein, every, everyone was so great. And that it surpassed, I would say, our expectations. Finished product was so good. And also, you know, like in the early going, oh, also we, you know, we had uh, each episode begins with a school announcement and we got Janine Garofalo and Alec Baldwin to do the school announcement, the voiceovers. So that was great too. So everything just like really came together in such a way that we were so proud of it and happy with it. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier. When you have that sense that you did what you set out to do, you know, or, or even surpassed it, like, you know, what else can you really ask for? That feeling was really satisfying. So, yeah, it, it was disappointing when then we, we pitched those around. We shopped those around. And, uh, you know, I, I specifically hired a manager and an agent to do that. And just nothing happened with it, you know. So, I mean, it's just that's the nature of the business. It's very, very fickle and unpredictable. It's amazing to me because, I mean, that was like comedy gold. And those episodes, like you said, they were shot professionally. I mean, they were like, it looked like there was tons of money behind it. I mean, it was like, it was it was really good. It's, it is also the kind of idea you could probably bring back anytime. Yeah, for sure. I, w- I would think so. You know, I, I'm a big believer that, yeah, you don't you don't know when the right time is going to be for anything, a particular project for you to hit with something. I'm also a big believer that you're always accumulating skills and tools that will help you whenever that thing does come. So my hope is whenever an opportunity comes, I've already shot a successful web series that I'm very proud of and, you know, that I helped, I co-wrote, I starred in, I helped to direct in a certain sense, even though we had a, you know, a great director, Matthew Weiss. But I was, you know, helping the comedians in terms of directing what we needed from them because they were my friends. So, yeah, what I'm saying is all of those skills will help me as I go forward. Absolutely. I I found that I find that in life, too. Someone's like, well, I'm like, oh, yeah, I do have that. (laughs) I didn't realize. (laughs) Right. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So one of the other things that I've followed you on for a long time, you're very passionate with social issues, very political, which is I think is great. Probably mostly because I agree 100% with everything you say. <laughs> Funny how that works, right? <laughs> sure, sure. It's not a requirement. It's not a requirement, but it's true. Yeah, uh, You and Bill Maher, that's where I get all my news. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like being so political has helped in any way or hurt in any way? How has that played out for you? Uh, well, you know, that's an interesting thing because it was really just a, a life shift that happened. You know, I would say like 
It was interesting, even, you know, as we talked about my Comedy Central Presents, those were about five years apart, and 9-11 happened in between. So my comedy pivoted a little bit, even after 9-11, where, like, in my first Comedy Central Presents, I wasn't really talking about anything too political. Um, It was mostly just observational and my own life and stuff like that. But then there was a shift in the second special where it it was more political, talked about 9-11, talked about Katrina, even that had happened. So, yeah, so then as... You know, the the crash happened in 08 and then Occupy Wall Street happened in 2011. I just found myself more and more drawn to these things. You know, I didn't go to Occupy Wall Street intending to, you know, I wasn't really an activist, but I just found myself drawn to it, kind of innately compelling to me. So, yeah, that that's what I've kind of followed in this past decade, really. Black Lives Matter, all the things that have kind of come to the surface and to the center, the climate movement. You know, because what I found, you know, again, I was not, I would not categorize myself as an activist pre-Occupy Wall Street. But what I found is you become part of a network and and then you just, you know what's going on and what the next thing is and what you have friends that are, they're so uh, passionate and and are organizers uh, that they keep you abreast of what else is going on. So to me, that was a real gift to be around people that were informed, passionate, had a worldview that was more broad than mine. And also as a comedian, I think sometimes we can get into this insular world where we're just hanging out with comedians, talking about comedy. So it really uh, it really opened up my life and my perspective in a lot of ways. So I'm very grateful for that. To the other part of your question, did it help or hurt in the industry? It probably hurt in some respects because I don't think uh, people wanted politics uh, in their comedy and on a lot of these shows or a lot of, you know, the bookers or what they were looking for. I'm a big believer that whatever you forfeit in certain respects, you're gaining in other areas if you're kind of operating from your integrity. Ultimately, I was happy to let go of whatever I did lose from that. It was very inspirational, not only to me, I'm sure to many others. Thank you. Yeah, I'm just sitting here and I don't have the, I want to say courage, I guess I had the courage to do it myself. And then like to be able to like kind of vicariously live through those actions and like feel good about it. So oh, thanks. thank you for that, sir. Yeah, I appreciate it. I was re-listening to the Dr. Katz. There was a couple of jokes of yours that always stuck out in my head. <laughs> <laughs> One of them was in there. One of them was about Jesus and the abs. Jesus <laughs> abs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's an old favorite. Yeah. It's an old favorite. It's so great. Did that one as part of the animated Dr. Katz, which was great. Yeah, I think that's on YouTube somewhere. Yeah, definitely. That's where I was digging around. And then the other one I remember, and I'm gonna—I don't want to butcher it, but I'm gonna butcher it. It's like Ted's voice. If you and you can hear, and we'll talk about your special in a second. But like, you have a very bring-in type of voice. You have a very—I don't want to say soothing because that implies you fall asleep. But like, it's a very <laughs> people, you, people have at my shows. <laughs> by the way, you could yeah. see like where you'd be a teacher. You have a, the, your voice. It has a certain cadence to it that you, you want to hear. It's like, it's easy to listen to. Anyway, so this other one was like, it was something about like a dream and can, uh, in gravy. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> and it was just like, uh, there's a reason you were asleep. <laughs> yeah, how people are always uh, excited to tell you about their dreams, but it's always just some boring story, you know. And I say, yeah, there's a reason you were asleep during this. I'm dozing off just listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> So funny. For some reason, it's just some, sometimes certain jokes just, they never leave you. Like, you, yeah, you know. yeah. No, I appreciate that. You know, especially the, like when you have those early bits, 
that work and that become like identified with you in some way. I think the two that you mentioned are definitely like that. You know, that feels great. As a comedian, when you're starting, it's just great to have stuff that works, you know, like you just cling to like, okay, this has got, you know, um, a closer or I've got like, you know, uh, that's my signature bit or whatever. But then, yeah, as years go by, it's funny for me to look back at those because, you know, I mean, I'm doing it now like close to 28 years. There's a nostalgia to it and a pride and it's almost like an, an old friend or an old, you know, I don't know, like, I guess like a baby in a way. It's like that's in your infancy as a comedian. That's like uh, they were they were with you. That was your crew, uh, you know, like your, your bag of jokes as you as you were starting out. So, yeah, I look back fondly on I, I mean, I, I love listening to. My early stuff. I don't mean like I sit down and do it, but when I when I hear it, I uh, I'm I'm proud of it. I, I enjoy it. Yeah, it was good. It was good stuff. It, in terms of like the old bag of tricks, I remember I saw John Pinette. Pe- yeah, Pinette. Pen- he, Pinette. He's John, since, since passed away. He, he's right? passed away. Yeah. yeah, John Pinette. Sorry, I'm horrible with pronouncing. <laughs> That's all right. It's funny, like when you realize you've never actually said something out loud. <laughs> <laughs> right. You just read it, and in your head, you hear it. Anyway, so he got on stage. And just referenced like you were here for hours. That joke, you know. Oh, the one the uh, the Chinese buffet. That was his signature. The Chinese just he just referenced it. Yeah, he didn't do the joke. He yeah. referenced it yeah, yeah. and brought the house down. Oh <laughs> like, man, I'm like that to me. That's like if you can do that. Oh wow, you made it then, man. <laughs> it's funny you mention him because I first met John and worked with him funny enough on a cruise with Lewis Black because Lewis Black for a few years was doing this thing called Lou's Cruise where he would bring a bunch of comedians onto like a Royal Caribbean ship or whatever Kathleen Madigan was there Larry Wilmore a bunch of people Don Marrera so John was on there as well and so it what was great about it was I only had to do like maybe two nights worth of shows uh, and then the other three or four nights whatever it was you just watch the likes of Kathleen Madigan, John Panette. And just to sit in a room and watch Panette like murder, like he killed, like no, everyone of course did well. But yeah, the way he got standing ovation, like every set that he did, he was just that guy that like his energy and the way he would crescendo to such a, a fever pitch that they, they had no choice but to stand and applaud, you know? So yeah, he was, uh, he was a real treat to, to watch perform. And God love him. I mean, he was just as uh, as much of a tornado offstage, too. Like, after the shows, you know, go to the bar. And I remember him, like, ordering drinks for me. You know, and I'm not a big drinker, but he's like, Alexandra, what are you having? I'm like, uh, you know, I'll have, uh, I think I had, like, a Bailey's on the rocks. And he's like, give me three Bailey's on the rocks. And he'd, like, put three in front of me. I'm like, I'm really going to probably just drink half of one of these, you know. But that's the way he was. And, and he'd order, like, every appetizer they have. And, you know, he was just engaging everybody at the bar. And, like, he was always on stage, you know, that that kind of uh energy and personality so he was he was uh you know a lot of fun just to witness you know that must have been fun i I met him backstage in the green room and he signed the flyer for me which was cool yeah it's always sad when you lose someone like that it's so funny it's like oh man so funny and yeah young too i mean he was he had to be like what 45 maybe maybe 50 yeah yeah, i can't remember but and you, you know as you said it i wonder too like would he even have i guess he probably would have still been able to do the chinese buffet bit but, you know, like with the PC culture now, you wonder if, if that bit even would... They probably wouldn't show it on TV. He could probably do it in, in clubs. Probably. So, yeah. so let's let's talk about your special. I know you've done a bunch of specials, but your most recent one is called Cut Up. And uh, I watched it. It was really good. Thank you. It's interesting because it's like what it like 
five different clubs? Uh, well, it's actually three. It's it's the Comedy Cellar, uh, the Village Underground, and uh, Helium in Portland. Oh, six six different shows, three different. Okay, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, okay, that's right. I just sorry, so I can't read my own writings. And <laughs> I take notes on stuff. I'm like, oh, I'm so prepared. And when I look at my notes for a show, I'm like, I can't read one thing. That I wrote. <laughs> Who wrote this? <laughs> so the comedy seller is that's like one of my quick tangent because we mentioned David Tell earlier. Mm-hmm. Anytime I would go to New York, just as a tourist, go to the comedy seller. It's the greatest place. Anyone listening, you go there and you get headliners like Ted Alexandro. I think Aziz Azaria showed up once. Amy Schumer showed up to one of the shows to test a Roseanne Barr roast material. It was like every person there, Dave Attell, I think was there four of the five times I've been in that club, you know. And then they always hang out after, which is kind of cool. Yep, yep. It's all headliners doing like 15 minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. The cellar is, it's like the Yankee Stadium. Uh, it's just the iconic venue of stand-up. I don't think really there's any other place like it. I mean, I guess you could argue maybe in LA, the comedy store or other places, but for my money, the seller, because of the unpredictability, as you said, like who might pop in uh, on any given night, you know, I mean, I was there one night when on the same night, I think it was Chappelle, Seinfeld, Rock, and, um, and who was the fourth? Maybe it was Amy Schumer. Yeah. But just these like big stars that happen to come all on the same night and the crowd is just expecting, you know, they're just expecting a great show, but you never know who's going to be there. So it has that energy. And, and also the fact that, as you say, it's all headliners. It's all people with, with impressive credentials. So for me, yeah, it's, that's been a fun experience. My trajectory from, you know, being on the outside looking in, even though I started in New York. I would just go to the cellar, much like you described when I was starting. I would sit in the back. If you're a comedian, at least back then, probably now they, they don't because it's just always packed. I would sit in the back and watch Attell, whoever was there, you know, but Attell usually would close the shows. So uh, it was just a real education. So then to go from that to getting passed at the club, and then it takes years for you to feel like you have your legs and you belong and you feel comfortable there. So then that happened. And then, you know, in recent years, it's now it's my home club and I work there all the time and I'm free to try things out and just to be myself. You know, I don't I don't have to fear that I, I'm not going to be passed if if a set doesn't go well or whatever. That kind of frees you up to to do some of your, you know, to, to create and to do your, your best work. So that's why that's part of why I use the video that we had shot from those clubs for cut up. The, the last time I went there, I'm with my wife and I'm like in line to get in and I'm talking to my wife and I don't realize because I don't know who the MC is that he's standing there next to me and then I'm <laughs> in the front row and he started talking to us and referencing things that we had said in line and I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, thank God <laughs> I was limited in whatever came out of my mouth. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the comedy cellar, small, it's very tight. It's like if there was a fire, you'd just turn to the people next to you and go, Nice knowing. (laughs) It's pretty much. But the food is also great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The cellar is about maybe 120 people, I think, when it's packed. It's just this tiny basement, very weirdly configured. You would not pick it out if you were trying to design a comedy room, but it's, it's great. And then the Village Underground is around the corner, and that used to be a music venue, and they own that as well. And then I guess just as comedy boomed, and as they were selling out multiple shows a night at the cellar, I think they finally realized, like, we're sitting on this other room, let's just make this a full-time comedy room as well. So the Village Underground is is right around the corner, right across the street from the Blue Note, so that's kind of a, a cool little area. That's a bigger room, the uh, the Village Underground, that's probably maybe 200. Yeah, my last two special 
specials, uh, Senior Class of Earth, and Cut Up. At least parts were both shot at the Village Underground. Well, it's great. It's an hour of TED. It's on YouTube, on the TED Alexandro YouTube channel. You can check that out. I discovered the Comedy Cellar. I was working with, way back when, I was working with Robert Kelly. And by yeah. coincidence, my wife and I were going on, like, I think it was our anniversary, and we were going to New York the next week. And he's like, oh, I'm going to be at the Comedy Cellar. I'm like, oh, let's go to that. It was probably my first time in New York. That's how I discovered the Comedy Cellar. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was that like late 90s, early 2000? It probably was either right around the time we worked together or just before. I was probably- Right around there. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, it was a long, long time ago. I remember Robert Kelly actually drove us back to our hotel. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Here's my claim. That's to great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, Bobby's a great guy. You know, it's funny because the seller wasn't even- even like when I was starting, wasn't what it is now. You know, it's kind of had this growth- in status and becoming this iconic institution of, of comedy over the past couple of decades. I think Louis' show had a hand in that because it began with him mm -hmm. going in into the club. Various shows have, have since shown the seller. So yeah, I think it's kind of grown in stature probably, you know, since around the time that you went. It's very just memorable when you see it. Yeah. You see it and you immediately know that's even if you don't know the name, you go, that's the same club that all those other people were at. Yeah. It's very recognizable. For sure. Yeah. Even just the entrance, you go down these steep stairs, comedy cellars and lights. And then the room is, as I said, like odd. And uh, it's almost like three or four different spaces, you know, like if you look in this direction, the room goes kind of far to your right. Then there's like a little balcony, you know, in the corner. Then there's just two rows, like right in front of you, literally two rows. And a space in between for people to go to the bathroom, which is a constant stream of people because people are coming down from the restaurant, coming into the show and just to use the bathroom and, and go back out. And then the left is like its own weird. So as a comedian, you know, you're corralling these different areas. Uh, usually people are right in front of you or maybe, you know, they're all kind of fanned out very evenly. But the seller has these disjointed little pockets. So, it, you know, it takes a little time to learn the room as a comedian. And, and it's daunting when you're starting just because it is the seller. But yeah, you know, over time, you kind of, as I said, you, you get comfortable with it. It's definitely. And this is turn. We're going to have to call them and have them sponsor this episode. That's right. <laughs> That's my, right. my funniest seller story is I went, I was, I think, in New York for work, go to the comedy seller, right? Watch the show. Next week, I'm working a club in Ann Arbor. The headliner goes up, starts doing his thing. I turn to my friend. I'm like, Sal, I think this headliner like stole all this material. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, I've heard this before. He's like, where? I go, I can't remember where I've heard this before. So I go look at my camera because I took a picture as you're walking down of everyone that was there. I had seen him the week before at the comedy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. But it no, but it had no recollection. I, like it kind of just came and went in my brain. But like I remember that. Yeah. And so all of a sudden I'm hearing it and it's like freaking me out. I'm like. <laughs> You're like, he, he even stole the guy's look. <laughs> so bizarre. <laughs> oh, that's great. So this is amazing. And then, so what's next for you? What's next for Ted Alexandro? Well, I would say there's a lot that is unknown due to the pandemic. So we'll see if and when things kind of get back to normal as far as being able to uh, perform in clubs. Right now, I'm kind of focusing on my own show, do the Ted Alexandro show. It's, you know, it's a podcast, but I do, a, uh, I do it on video as well and have usually comedians, but also people from the world of politics and activism. And, you know, I've had everyone from Jim Gaffigan, Todd Barry, uh, 
Judy Gold, everyone, Judah Friedlander. Yeah, so it's just it's just a fun way for me to kind of uh, keep the performing chops up and talk about what's going on in my life and uh, to keep in touch with, with friends. Everyone check out the Ted Alexander Show and his specials. They're all on the same YouTube channel. You can check them out there. Ted, it's good catching up. I appreciate you spending time with me. Jeff, a real pleasure, buddy. Yeah, man. Nice, nice to catch up with you as well. All right. How fun was that? Ted Alexandro, ladies and gentlemen, one of the funniest comedians in the world. I'm going to put a link to the show notes. You got to watch Teacher's Lounge, the web series. It's amazing. I'm going to put a link to his podcast. I'm going to put a link to his YouTube channel so you can watch his comedy specials. All amazing. If you haven't seen Ted Alexandro in the past, then you have to add it to your bucket list for the future. It's a must. He's hilarious. Well, here we are coming to the end of yet another episode. Can you believe it? Episode 54 is almost done, but almost done. Wait, wait. It's not done yet because you know what time it is. It's time for a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags from the hashtag roundup. That's right. Hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free hashtag roundup app. Play hashtag Twitter games with us all day, every day. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on an episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. Asterisk. Legal note. Fame and fortune allegedly might, but I can't promise you it awaits you. This week, we got a fun hashtag from Mr. Race Bannon, who runs a weekly game on hashtag Roundup. The hashtag is hashtag what they don't teach you in school. An homage to Ted Alexandro's first profession, school teacher. What they don't teach you in school is a hashtag game where you read the hashtag and then you tweet with the hashtag something that you think they didn't teach you in school. Serious or funny, everything goes on hashtag Roundup. And here's a few examples of the tweets that came out for you to enjoy of hashtag what they don't teach you in school. Ignored lesson one, how to grow old gracefully. That's right. As you get older, maybe don't wear your kids clothes. What else didn't they teach you in school? Beer before liquor. That's right. That's something we just learn and pick up in college. Another thing they do not teach us in school, how to fold a fitted sheet. Oh, my God. That torments everyone for a lifetime. These are some amazing hashtag what they don't teach you in school tweets. Here's a good one. That one day soon, mom and dad are going to stop paying for everything. What? Every kid says with a gasp. A very important lesson not taught. Don't stop believing. That's right. We had to all learn that from Journey. A lesson that we had to learn from Saturday. Night Live, and because they did not teach us in school, cowbell may be the answer. The answer, the only prescription, is more cowbell. I apologize for the worst Christopher Walken impression ever. Let's get back to hashtag what they don't teach you in school. The best ways to fake your own death. Yes, that could be important sometimes. I'm not sure when, but um, hopefully the FBI and CIA are not listening right now. Vacations are important. That's right. Take a break. Work-life balance, folks. How to refill the ice cube tray. That is definitely something they do not teach you in school. And I had many, many roommates that did not know how to do that. How to survive the apocalypse. <laughs> Again, this, they do not teach you this in school. You can see like when people rush for toilet paper and gas. No one has a clue. We're all doomed. Another lesson they don't teach you in school is how often you'll burn the roof of your mouth while eating frozen pizza. This is something that everyone should be prepared for before leaving for college. High school is remiss 
and not having an entire class on this topic. How to calculate sales tax. That is something they do not teach you, but also they don't teach you how to tip. It's 20%. You just take 10% and then double it. Little uh, tip from me to you. Another hashtag what they don't teach you in school. All the funniest parts of the movie are in the trailer. Oh, that is unfortunately so true. How to make shadow puppets, how to file taxes. And of course, one of the most important things that hashtag they don't teach you in school how to avoid death. Oh, stay alive, everyone. Figure it out on the Twitter. All right, those are some fun hashtag what they don't teach you in school. As always, all those tweeters will be retweeted at Jeff Dewaskin show and listed in the show notes. Show them some love, give them some retweets, play along, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin show. Well, here we are at the end of episode 54. Thanks to everyone for hanging on chilling with me for yet another week next week is our one year anniversary pretty excited for that gonna put together an awesome show for you and i'll see you then thanks so much for listening to this episode of the jeff dwoskin show with your host jeff dwoskin now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius catch us online at the jeff or follow us on twitter at jeff dwoskin show and we'll see you next time